You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Masterclass. So today's masterclass, as I said, is about the world of drag and we have an academic who has explored the history um, and as well as an award-winning drag artist Manila Fontes uh, who'll be joining us. Manila actually has so many uh, accolades and honours including being a runner-up in Essays Got Talent in 2016 and various crowns if I can put it that way. So we'll be joining Manila in a short while as we explore the world of drag. Be a part of this conversation. Um, when I Reflected on it, I suspected that there's just so much that um, that is important about the world of drag that is not talked about enough, uh, or researched, or commented enough, intellectualized enough. Um, and one area, for instance, is the impact of drag on uh, the beauty industry. We've learned so much from drag artists. Look at the cut crease. Anybody who, who cares about makeup will know that the cut crease technique in the brow of the eye. Um, if you search it now, you'll find beauty vloggers doing tutorials, but it's actually a gift from the drag world. What about a uniform sort of airbrushed makeup look? Um, that's become the new normal. You know, this is the, the aesthetic when we, when we talk about makeup, you're going to step out in to an event or a special occasion and so on. That comes from the world of drag or ombre eyebrows or contoured cheeks, um, or features of the face that are contoured, um, highlighter, flattering false eyelashes. I mean, everybody and their mother wears lashes now. Everyone. Is wearing lashes now and i don't think that the drag community gets the credit that they deserve for the trends that are happening within the makeup landscape just that's one example that's one example of how the drag world is contributing and is shaping uh, uh, mainstream uh, fashion, mainstream beauty, as far as this aesthetic is, or rather as far as this example is is concerned and we also have to wonder about the the sort of impact that drag is having when it comes to boundaries, pushing boundaries around gender ideas or heteronormative and gender ideas uh, because drag challenges what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man and the limitations that society has placed on those who live in it. So it's going to be a wonderful exploration uh, for this hour as we dive into this conversation. So with that, let me welcome my guest starting with Manila Von Tees, a drag artist, a drag performer Hello, Manila. Hello, love. How are you doing? Oh, good to have you. Thank you for being here to share uh, a, everything that you know. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. The more people know, the more people will do it. So that's that's all I'm here for. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and then we also have Dr. Tracy McCormick, who is a lecturer of applied linguistics at the University of Johannesburg. Hello, Tracy. Hello, Zania. And hello, Manila. I'm a great fan of yours. Yeah. Love. <laughs> yeah. love it, love it. So before I start getting WhatsApps and all sorts of messages about what is drag, um, let's first just define it, put everybody into the picture of what we're talking about. Um, and Tracy, let me start with you because this is an area that you have been researching. But just briefly, how would you define it? How would you describe it? Um, Azania, I would describe describe drag as gay men who wear women's clothes. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to want to push that definition a little bit, but Manila, let me hear from you as well. How would you describe it? Well, I think drag is a self-expression because, I mean, if I feel like if I want to be a drag queen today or a little bit more feminine tomorrow, it's completely up to me how I express my drag because basically anyone can do drag, but it's the interpretation of how you express that term drag to other people. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, females do bi- they call bio queens. Females does drag. Trans people does drag as well. Um, females does drag. Fe- female to male. Uh, male to female. You know, it's, it's, it's a big spectrum of what drag is. It's more basically a self-expression. It's an art form. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes, I wanted to talk about the artistry because I think that's where it absolutely belongs. As you say, yes, it's more than uh, just art. There's self-expression involved, but it is absolute art. Um, And I wonder how you both feel about that. Manila, I know you're clear on it. I've watched the things that you do, whether it was going back to the videos that you did for um, Essays Got Talent or the different faces that form part of your impressive gallery this is art yeah. at the heart of it as well. It is. It is basically art. And um, we sometimes have this tendency to be to ourselves and not have any way of expressing ourselves. And drag has allowed me to express myself in so many ways that I didn't even think that I would be able to. And yeah, that's, it's just been amazing having to be able to use this outlet for my drag for my sewing because I'm a designer by day yes. and as makeup because um, they kind of go hand in hand. And I mean, I even do my own wigs sometimes as well. So it's a full on production of yeah. how you can do it. Yes, it's a full on production. Um, and thanks for that clarification about the fact that it's not just the performance of femininity, but it's also the performance of masculinity. Um, uh, or yeah. other forms of gender expression. And it's also a form of any kind of a performance of any kind of character, a character that you imagine. Yeah. Who are your characters? Well, mine, I, because my name also comes from RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, I got my name from Manila Luzon, mm-hmm. because she was like a, a queen. So I um, instantly gravitated towards her name. And then also, I like to see myself as a little bit sexy as well. And then Dita Von Tees came into the picture and I was like, wow, Manila Von Tees, it's perfect. And I think that is where my, my name kind of came about. And my character is also very similar, which is like slightly um, conceptual, mm-hmm. but also slightly sexy or sex siren or sex symbol. Mm. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that is kind of the combination of what Manila's character is about. Yes. So now that we've set the scene, uh, Tracy, you've looked at the history because what RuPaul's Drag Race has done, they have what over 11 seasons, um, shows like Pose and so on. They've created a huge global interest in drag. Uh, but we also need to highlight our own local drag scene. So, it, you you looked into the history of drag. What can you tell us about its early days, its genesis, or what the records reflect? Thanks so much, Zanya. Um, yes, I've done quite a, a lot of research on drag, and you know, in, it's mostly popular in the Western Cape, and that's because of in 1887 they had the very first Kapsa Klopsa, 
which is now known as the the annual carnival, which happens on the 2nd of of January every year. And leading the Kapsa Klopse was what they called a Mofi, M-O-F-F-R-E. Now, that name actually came from sailors who docked in the Cape Harbour in the 18th and 19th century. And it refers to a sailor who was a little bit feminine. Mm-hmm. So the person who led the Kaps, the Klopse, was called a Morphe with a PH and later it became a Morphe. And that's why that word became associated with gay men. But Cape Town itself has been an incredibly queer subculture because of the sailors and because of the interactions with people from the rest of the world. We had in the colored community, the hairdressers were usually gay men, and they were very well accepted in, in these communities. And in the 1950s, Azania, um, you know, there was Drum Magazine and the Golden City Post. Mm-hmm. And these were tabloid magazines. I'm sure that your audience will know them. And they latched onto these uh, effeminate hairdressers and men who would wear dresses. And they themselves started staging little uh, pageants for these drag queens. And that was an absolute hit with the audience. You know, the audience was mostly a black urban audience, and it was unbelievably successful. And so what the editors of Drum and the Golden City Post decided to do was to stage their own pageants so that they could actually create enough content to keep up with the need from the the readers. And this is the root of the annual Miss Gay Western Cape. It was first held in a tiny little house somewhere on the Cape Flats that the photographers from Brom and Golden Post took pictures of. And of course, in 1996, uh, after homosexuality was decriminalized in South Africa, it became more official then. Mm-hmm. Also, in Johannesburg, uh, um, Azania, you know, in 1969, saw the opening of the first uh, big gay club called The Dungeon, and there were many, many drag queen shows there. That was more a white uh, a, a kind of crowd that went there, but I've seen documentation of drag shows from 1969 onwards. And I think that in every little dorp and in every township, and in every little shebeen in every township, there's always been a little drag show. So it's not a thing that has been far from our popular imaginary. It happens everywhere. So, but Tracy, you also write that despite the popular cultural manifestations of drag in the media, online and in pageants and performances, um, you go on to say that um, the same academic interest in theorizing drag in South Africa is limited. Why do you think that's the case? That's a very good question, Azania. And you know, I'm not sure why. You know, I published that article which later became a conversation piece in 2018. Prior to that, the last piece of research I could find that was published was from 2004. So that was a 14-year hiatus before my research was published. And I'm not sure 
why I say at the end of the conversation piece, you know, overseas, we've got RuPaul, we've got Graham Norton, we've got our own Samizian Flongo, and he's also making shows. And the thing is, though, that this is not being taken up in academia. Research is not being done. And at the beginning of your program, Zanya, you talked about the incredible influence that drag queens in South Africa and from the global north have had on women's application of makeup. But the thing is, it doesn't seem to be taken seriously unless there's some kind of research, uh, some kind of knowledge production that can then filter into the popular imaginary. And so, Azani, I'm not quite sure. The only reason I can think of offhand and is that, you know, I think because of our incredibly virulent homophobia in South Africa, despite our constitution and the equality clause in the constitution, I think researchers who, who are researching queer issues are looking at for example, the incredible violence and rape of lesbian women and other issues, you know, poverty in, in gay black communities, other issues that seem more pressing. That's just one answer I could give you. Right. Um, Manila, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but as um, Tracy was speaking, you know, a thought crossed my mind that some things don't need to be validated by um, academia, but we do have to be mindful of um, the development of knowledge uh, because one aspect that I came across is that much of the skills, in fact, were sometimes passed down. You know, those who are established drag performers would pass it down as they mentor the new younger artists yeah. who are coming up. That that's that's really how it's been for many years. Um, so that can that that can fail the the industry on the one hand, but at the same time, who cares about the validation of of uh, of an institution, for instance? It doesn't stop yeah, totally people. Mm -hmm. Exactly, but uh, but it, it comes down to the point where um, I didn't have anything to look up and find how to do drag, how. Has it been done? What's the history? I didn't have any tools like that at my disposal when I started. So the only thing that I saw was the queens performing and taking tips from what I saw them doing, as well as then slowly but surely we got into the RuPaul's Drag Race thing where we kind of picked and, 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 and gotten um, tips from them as well. Mm -hmm. So it's great that there is um, published stuff nowadays about drag and um, there should be more but I mean it's the, it's the, the, the close encounters with drag queens and the, the learning from one another that is the major thing with our community absolutely so let's take a break and then when we come back we explore more of the artistry and the history of this incredible performance art called drag 702 masterclass 25 minutes past uh, two, uh, and I'm in conversation with Dr. Tracy McCormick, lecturer of applied linguistics at the University of Johannesburg, as well as drag performer, award-winning at that, Manila Von Tees, joining us for this masterclass on drag artistry. And we uh, started the conversation earlier by looking at the, the history of, of drag and just trying to understand exactly why there isn't enough uh, body of work, academic body of work around this uh, particular artistry, though it affects and it 
just merges and influences so many other uh, um, artistic endeavors. Um, and it also brings them into one, as we've heard about Manila Von Teese's uh, area of, of expertise. So, um, Tracy, if I come back to you, I think the earlier definition that you shared has angered some people. One says uh, um, that drag is uh, that the drag, drag is not a gay thing. Many cross-dressing males are totally heterosexuals. So that obviously did not sit quite so well with many of our listeners, neither with me, because I think it is quite a broad, much broader um, yeah. artistry that involves a whole host of people from various backgrounds and expressing themselves in different ways, which then makes the gender-bending nature of drag even that much more exciting to society. Yes, uh, Azania, I agree with you, and I agree with your listeners. I was just taking kind of a broad stroke mm-hmm. at it. And I think the, the reason is because it is quite complicated. There's some gender theories. There's a woman called Judith Butler who wrote a book called Gender Trouble in the late 90s. And she put forward that there is no such thing as gender. Gender is a performance. In other words... The only reason why you seem to be a woman is because every day you repeat the performance of femininity. You do it over and over and over until you are recognized as a woman. And the same goes for a man. And she used drag queens as a perfect example of the non-existence of gender. She put forward, Zania, that if a man is able to dress like a woman, act like a woman, but he's actually a man, that shows the very instability of gender, that it is not a real thing. It is a cultural construct. And earlier you said something about theatricality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Judith Butler is quite insistent that it's not about just, you know, putting on a different suit and acting a different role in the day. This is an inescapable thing. We cannot get away from all the millions of restrictions that we have to every day perform around our gender. So she saw drag as an incredible resistance to the biological definitions of gender. And this has really disrupted the academic world, Zania. And it's from her kind of uh, musings that people like, for example, uh, Paris is Burning, one of the very early documentaries about the drag homes in New York City, which was taken up by Pose. So it's an actual story. And about how drag has, a, has played a very subversive role in challenging gender stereotypes. And of course, Azania, drag can be done by men and by women. You have drag kings. These are lesbian women who dress up as men and have their own shows, but of course it's not as well-known or popular as yeah. drag, uh, you know, as we know it in, in RuPaul, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also that RuPaul and Graham Norton, and that, that drag is, and in America it's quite accepted in other places of the world, especially in Africa and South Africa. Drag is still seen as something not quite acceptable. And um, quite subversive. So although I did give quite a short definition, you know, I was uh, behind that. There's a lot of thinking about gender and what gender means.
Would you want to respond to that, Manila? Um, yeah, she is totally right with regarding to um, um, gender and how we express ourselves. Um, and I mean, a lot of I, I'm, I can't speak for other people's um, 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 stories and, and experiences, but a lot of trans people use drag as a form of kind of finding who they are and kind of is, is like a like a preschool to them becoming who they are to kind of find out is this kind of where I am? Is this the gender dysphoria that I have? And um, and that is also the amazing part of drag is pe- people find themselves through the art form of drag. Like even with myself, having um, gone through a whole lot last year, I had to just dive deeper into my drag to find myself again and um, to be a better person at yes. the end of the day. Oh, I just love that. Something It's liberating from what I'm hearing, that there's yeah. liberation for the individual that uh, it comes forward. Totally. It totally does. Oh, that's beautiful. Let's take the headlines. We'll come back to our conversation. There's so much more to talk about this artistry. You can also give us a call on 011-883-0702. Join in as I chat to award-winning drag performer Manila Von Tees and Dr. Tracy McCormick, lecturer of Applied, Applied Linguistics at the University of Johannesburg this afternoon. 702 Masterclass. Yes, and we conclude our conversation with Dr. Tracy McCormick, and then we're going to look into the artistry with Manila Von Tees, who is a drag performer. Tracy is a lecturer in applied linguistics at UJ, and we've been looking at the history of drag, which she has researched, and also lamenting the fact that there isn't enough academic theorizing and work on drag in South Africa. It's been limited over the years. So, Tracy, what your work also um, uncovered was the, the doyens of of drag tell us about some of the individuals who uh, are seen as the doyens who have helped in fact to keep it moving forward you're talking about historical doyens yes yes so that's a really good question Azalea you know the only documentation of these um, kind of drag parties I was talking to you about um, earlier in the 1950s, where the photographs were reproduced in the Golden City Post and the Drum uh, magazine, was done in 1958. Uh, Drum uh, gave uh, a British photographer, Ian Berry, um, a commission to go into, you know, the areas in Cape Town and try and find pictures of these drag queens. And he came up with a most fascinating photo essay called a drag at Madame Costello's. And there are 15 pictures in all that give you an absolute link into the lives of the drag queens during the 1950s. Unfortunately, you can't reproduce them because, you know, they've got um, copyrighted by Bailey's photo archives. Mm. But <clears throat> if I can just give you an example of the pictures, you have Madame Joey Costello herself. <clears throat> and she's pictured in a black velvet ball gown, you know, with empire-style brooches running down the left of her shoulder to her derriere, where she's got a noticeable derriere, and matching dainty little rings and watches, and she's opening a bottle of gin on a tray that's got fine glassware, you know, from sherry glasses to champagne flutes. Um, and then, of course, there's an, other pictures of someone called... Uh, Linda Darnell, you know, who's 
pictured in a swing dress, and Kay Kendall wearing an evening gown, um, and Papa Laurie with a diamante halter neck. Um, and also, I think, I'm not sure if you've, if you've uh, had anybody from the Gay and Lesbian Archive on, but of course, there's also Kewpie, K-E-W-P-R-E, who the, the Gay and Lesbian Archive has created a whole, they found uh, her photograph, and they created a whole show about her life when she lived in District 6. And she's also one of the more colorful characters uh, that uh, arise during this area and era. And Zania, what's interesting is that at that time, there was a, a perception amongst people that if you were a man and acted like a woman, then you actually were a kind of a woman. That kind of perception also uh, 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 was perceived in the, in the in the black townships of South Africa. And so, for example, you had what they call a Malay marriage, which was when a drag queen actually took up with a straight Malay man because, and it was accepted in the community because the drag queen was seen as really being a woman and not a man. And some of these relationships between drag queens and members of the community continued for 20 or 30 years. So it's quite an interesting, there were the, the doyens of that time were celebrated within the communities of Zania. They were the holders of gossip, of gossiping at hairdressers. They held a lot of sway in the community. Some of them also hold, held a lot of sway with the gangsters of the time. And of course, Drum and the Golden City Post, you know, portrayed this quite sensationalistic. And why I'm saying Ian Berry's uh, photographic essay on Madame Costello is that he portrays them as dignified human beings. He shows them with their Malay husbands, whereas the other pictures in Drum and Golden City Post really show the pictures in a terribly sensationalist way. Right. And they describe drag queens in a terribly sensationalist way, like their lives are pitiful, look at them. Um, in, in the piece in the conversation from a 1956 issue of the Golden City Post, the reporter on, on, on drag queens writes, they lead a lonely and bitter life. Their only constant companions, their own kind. Their only solace, what they find at the bottom of a bottle. Mm. Too often... They face the danger of becoming drink-sodden wrecks. Oh, it's hard to actually even listen to where we've come from. Yeah, because that's that's the history. That's the history that we've come from. And luckily, we live in a society that is now much more open-minded and allows for people to find freedom of expression, as you mentioned, as expressed in our constitution. Um, so, Tracy, let's wrap it there, because after this, we get into the artistry of things with Manila. So that is the hard background. So even as you hold uh, uh, views, adverse views, think about the miseducation that you've had over the years when it comes to drag um, and then after this we'll dive into the art that we mentioned at the start of, of this conversation that uh, uh, drag performance drag is artistry 702 masterclass 
So we've given you a brief history. Now we look at the artistry that uh, Manila Von Tees uh, 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 expresses every single show that she does. So Manila, when you got into it, you mentioned that you didn't have um, anyone to learn from or anything to refer to. So how did it happen? Well, pageantry was a big thing at the time. And well, it still is. Um, So I always watch. Yeah. Um, well, obviously not now because of the pandemic, but yeah, yeah. Um, before, it was quite a big thing and we would always go to pageants and there was like pageants every single weekend. So we would always dress up to go watch these pageants. And I think it just started from there. Well, I actually started with me going to a costume, uh, a crossover party with, um, with one of my friends. And I asked Kachalari, who's um, one of my best friends and performer, um, to put me in drag for the first time. And that's kind of where it started. Then it was the pageantries. And then I just started to perform one day with a group of mine, my friends. And then, yeah, everyone just said, why don't you just start to perform? And it just started from there. Oh, wow. And like a full on kind of a thing. Thing. So a natural <laughs> evolution into doing this professionally. We'll talk about the clothing range um, uh, a little bit later, but the kind of skills you had to learn because looking at your gallery, the makeup, I was uh, referring to how uh, uh, drag artistry has impacted makeup, makeup trends yeah. and how uh, uh, people apply makeup. You see it all the time, especially on the social pages. So the kind of skills that you had to learn to make this a reality. Yeah, because the thing is this, with us as um, male um, transforming into female or for, for, for drag purposes, um, we have to obviously restructure our faces to look more feminine and then kind of work on top of that because you kind of restructure the foundation mm-hmm. and then structure everything on top of that. And that's kind of what the mainstream has taken also with regarding to even Kim K highlighting and contouring and shaping a face into looking more fierce and seductive than what it actually is. And that has been taken from drag probably. It has been a thing in drag since um, the ball days in New York City. So um, it's been been a a, a long journey of learning and and trying new things because it's all trial and error. Every time I get into drag, I learn something new. And that's kind of the process that I've always loved about drag is that they're always um, learning and they're always evolving and the always changing way of doing it and self-expression that it's been just amazing to be a part of this community. Absolutely. When I think of uh, the really amazing and artworks that it involves, because there's a whole story involved. It's not just doing the face. There's a, a, a character that needs to come forward. There is whatever else the character requires, you know, for it to find full expression. I remember watching one episode of RuPaul's Drag Race and the guy had wings, you know, um, there, there were these wings that kind of appeared. So it, it's, yeah. it, it's more than just doing a really banging face yeah it's all it's a total package they call it a double package um because the thing is is the audience um sees you in your ensemble and look and whatever that's the first thing that they see so if that it's that that doesn't work then they're not going to be interested and if you don't have them captured from the first second of your performance then um it's going to take a while for you to get that love from them so, and yeah, it's a whole lot of um, character that goes into it. Um, sometimes I um, have to be, I have to be vulnerable and sometimes 
you have to be upbeat in one song yes. because um, to give that um, range of emotion that you would normally have probably in one day you have to give in that three minutes. <laughs> that both- and I mean, it's therapy for us as well as queens because sometimes the song, well, most of the time the song has to speak to us first before it can speak to the audience or through us first to the audience. So we have to feel the song or the performance first and foremost before the audience will actually have an understanding of what you're trying to portray to them. So where does the inspiration come from? Because so often you have to express ideas um, that maybe, or, or rather you subvert the idea of what is acceptable. So where where does the inspiration come from? And just when you have to, when you push, when you push it even further, uh, what drives that? Well, it, it all just starts with something small. I get inspiration from everything mm. in my, my day-to-day life. I get inspiration. And it, sometimes just it's just a bead that lays in a certain way, then I will get an inspiration for a whole entire <laughs> from just the way that that bead is um, um, sparkling um, towards me. But that could be uh, like I get a wig first and then the ensemble works with a wig and then you kind of work the whole thing from the wig or then it's the outfit that I've created, but I don't have a performance. And then, you know, go search for songs. It's going to work with this ensemble that you've made. So it's a whole long process. You can't just think, okay, fine. I'm going to jump on the stage and then mm-hmm. um, give mm-hmm. up. Yes, there is people that does that and they do it well. But I mean, you have to have, I, I feel like you have to have some sort of backstory with regarding to your performance with, um, with whatever you put forward. So what kind of businesses have come out of you doing drag? Um, yeah, well, me, uh, my, myself, mm-hmm. well, it's my clothing line, House of Yarn, that has come basically from drag because everyone asked me who makes your clothes um, and stuff like that. So I was just like, everyone has been asking, just launch the, your label and then people mm-hmm. can actually start buying things, which is what we need now. It's um, people to just invest in small businesses and stuff, yeah. as well as a production company, which is MVT Productions. That we are a small team that we um, host events and um, bring the Post Rackers Queens over from um, the US to come perform here, mm-hmm. as well as um, up- uplift our local queens. Because a lot of people watch the Rag Race, a lot of people don't even know that we have local queens here in Cape Town Absolutely. or South Africa. So um, it's a great way for us to uplift um, our local scene because people don't even know who I am or who the fellow performers are but they know who the drag race queens are. So um, it's kind of, it helps us grow our fan bases and our um, audience basically to to get the audience from the ones that are sitting in, on the couches watching RuPaul's Drag Race. So what does the industry need then? Um, because there are places where you can perform regularly or you perform uh, uh, regularly, but overall, what mm-hmm. is, locally, what do you think we're missing? What do we need? Well, brand sponsorship, I think that we um, don't get sponsored as much as um, I think we should because um, a lot of companies are still scared of sponsoring drag queens because of the stigma that's still attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's slowly but surely getting out of it. And I mean, the more people speak about drag and the more people have conversations like this about drag, I mean, the more um, doors will open. Um, with regarding to corporate sponsorship. Yeah, and, you, you um, were part that, of the, the Levi's uh, Pride campaign. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. And I mean, that was beginning of last year. And I'm thinking, oh, oh my goodness, this is my year. This is my year. I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> things COVID. are happening. And bam, <laughs> bam. <laughs> she COVID. just came like a thief in the night. Yes. And 
I mean, you, you, it's, it's a learning experience and this whole pandemic has been a learning experience for all of us to just reflect and also, um, kind of find your, your way um, around things and, and find your lane and run in your lane and don't just, um, um, stroll in your lane, you know? Yeah. Um, take it. Absolutely. I think what I'm holding on to is how liberating the experience is. Yes, it can be engrossing in how beautiful drag is. You know, you get lost in it. You just think this is bloody stunning, you know. But yeah. uh, over and above that, I think what I've taken out of what you've said is the liberation that comes with it. And that yes. can, it can only be the most profound gift anyone can give themselves. Yeah, also, and we we give a, a, an audience of a feeling, an emotion, sometimes that they don't even sometimes feel or want to escape. And then we are that escape for them, you know. So it's amazing for me to just have, have a show and then people love it or people cry or people laugh or people uh, applaud, you know, just so that it's it's more for them than it is for me. But it helps me as well, because sometimes we like clowns, um, have a smile face or have to always make people laugh, but then we are not okay by ourselves. So it, it helps um, us as well with it going to our self-esteem and our um, mental health as well. Absolutely. Well, may you continue to do the beautiful work that you do. Mandela, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's Manila Vontis.